so here we go. So what have we seen so far in Genesis? We've seen that Genesis is the story of our faith. In Genesis 1, we see that God is the creator, and, he create, and creation is a product of God's design and his desire, that it is the work of his artist, artistic, uh, affectionate uh, 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 brilliance. That is not happenstance. God, God pours his heart and his mind to it. He's, he's this beautiful creation. But with all of the cosmos and all of the galaxies and all of the stuff that, that we find that in all of the greatness, think about this, friends, in the magnitude of creation, the creation, the story in Genesis, the focus of God's creative work, it lands at, it crescendos at creating mankind in his own image. The purpose of creation was to, for God to make us in his image. And then chapter 2, we saw that God has a design, a, a, a plan for that creation for mankind. We ask, how, should, how does God desire man to live in God's world? It is God's world. Yes. And God has a plan. God had a design for that. And we saw that that, that plan, that, 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 the, that God... That human nature, by the design of God, that it is God's design that we have a vocation, that we have a calling, that we have a purpose, that we do, that all of us are essential, that the works of our hands, the works of our heart, the works of our minds, our thoughts, our efforts that God created us to create and to produce. Yes. Yes. Not, not as an act of servitude, but as an act of worship. It's the, it is the function of an image bearer to emulate the image giver. Then we also saw that man is called to liberty, that God, that God commanded man to freely live, that liberty is, is, comes from the very heart of God. It's no wonder some fellers a few years ago said they thought that we are endowed by our creator with these certain unalienable rights that happened in the garden. Okay? And, then we, and then we see that man was also, although, although with, has a vocation and liberty, man is given boundary. And the boundaries exist to protect and to preserve. It's the, we are given boundaries for our own good. Yes. And, they, and those boundaries come from the goodness of God. Yes. Yes. And lastly, we saw in chapter 2 that man, it is not good for man to be alone. That man was designed, humanity was designed for fellowship, for communion, for community. You can say amen there too. Amen. I shouldn't. I, I'm, I was. I don't. If you're not saying amen to me. It's what's in the Bible. Uh, chapter three. We asked last week what went wrong, and we saw that what went wrong began with serpent speech. The enter the dragon, as it were. Uh, the, the 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 serpent begins to enter, introduce contrary ideas to get us to, to start talking about God instead of talking to Him. To prize analysis over obedience. And then we and the, we saw that the the taking of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not about a magic banana, it is about moral rebellion. Sin is moral rebellion. It is it is to say I decide what is right and wrong. I decide, and when we say I decide, it leads to uh, the collapse of our of our person. It is a rejection of our covenant as image bearers. And there is a fall. And we saw the consequences of that moral rebellion as God delineates those consequences. But in the midst of those consequences, we saw something fascinating. That in the midst of that, God says, and now there will be a war between the woman and the snake. And, and we saw that, there, that, 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 it, that in no way 
was that some sort of a demeaning, dismissive statement against women? But it was, an, it was it made it made us it made the snake aware that he picked on the wrong one. <laughs> and then he said, "Somebody's coming. Her descendant will come and step on you." Chapter 4 now, this morning, we're trying to talk about the fallout of all of that. And we have to hear this caution, beware what lurks. There's good instruction for us today from chapter 4. Because we're reading narrative portions, they don't really necessarily break down into what you might call the classical three-point essay. So there's not necessarily a single thesis and three supporting points to that thesis and then a nice, tidy conclusion. This isn't the book of Romans. This is a a story. And so while there are overarching big ideas, we are going to just have to lean in and listen to the wisdom as it comes. Is that okay? And and there's going to be, as I say every time, and I won't say this all the time, but there's there, especially in these first few chapters, there's going to be more we could explore. But we, we, I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow how I feel pressed about what I feel pressed to share, and uh, we can always. There's always more time to read Genesis and come back to stuff later. So let's begin with uh, the first two verses and how the narrator. Now we believe it's Moses, but I'll keep saying the narrator. He says, "Now the man had relations with his wife." Now we, I'll just say it right now. This is a, the timeline is not specific. We don't know if this is before or after, or the before before the banana or after the magic banana. We don't know. It doesn't matter. Just say it doesn't matter. It does not matter. That's the, the narrator doesn't care if it, to, to, to lay out a timeline. He just wants us to know what, that something happened. Okay? So the man had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have obtained a male child with the help of the Lord. And verse 2, and again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. What is a, not only is the timeline, the timeline is not clear... But there is one thing that is interesting about this so far, and that is, and, the, and if we're listening, if we're an early audience, we, and if we're a Hebrew audience, we're really paying attention, because the narrator says that she gives birth to her, her the, the, the firstborn is named, and the second is, and that's what he was, and so, and so if we're a Hebrew audience, do we kind of feel like our tradition is the firstborn's the big deal? Right, and we'll see that even in the in the lineages and stuff. But then, what happens the second half of verse two? Now, Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. Switched. The narrator talks about Abel first, and so we're doing exactly exactly what you're doing. Wait a minute, we just tilt our head and go, huh? We're not giving a lot of information, but we should go, huh? Right there. Maybe maybe that's indicative of what's coming. So then we continue with this. We have the first family and we have the first offerings. Ta-da! This is it. This is the first time that offerings are mentioned in our origin story. Ta-da! Yay! So now we're going to learn something. Ooh, Jesus. We're going to learn something about offerings. And I'm excited because I'm, I'm more excited. I'm probably excited for reasons that you don't think I am. But I'm very excited. It's very exciting. I'll just tell you why. Here it is. Verse 3, so it came about in the course of time. How much time? Course. <laughs> Thank you. Geniuses. A course of time. We don't know, but course. All right. 
Uh, it came about in the course of time. You can tell a guy wrote this. I don't know. It happened sometime. Uh, uh, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock and from the fat of their portions. Cain, who works the ground, brings an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Now, that's fine. Now, and, and, and we'll see later on, again, if we are some of the Hebrew audience, at this point, we're not bothered by that. We know that later on, Moses is going to give Levitical instructions that there's all kinds of offerings to bring to the Lord, oil and bread and fruit and wheat and meat and all that kind of thing. That, that these are offerings. We are not here talking about, contrary to maybe what some of we've heard, this is not an atonement offering. There's no mention that they were bringing some sort of sacrifice for atonement. This is, what this, what's happening here is this is an offering of gratitude yes. and honor, yes. recognizing Yahweh as their as provider, yes. thanking God for His. It's just kind of like a it's a it's a token, it's a trophy. Tada! Look, Lord, and, this, and they bring this tada as an offering to Him. And Cain brings something from the ground, and then and then Abel. It says Abel brings an offering from the firstborn of his flock and from the fat portions. So far, the difference is where they're from and, they, and it reflects what they do. But there is a little tiny hint, just a tiny hint if we listen. It sounds like the narrator at least gives more weight, more descriptive weight to what Abel brought. And again, and if you and I are part of the original readers or hearers and we hear that he brought the firstborn, we go, oh, that's, we're supposed to do that. And, it's the, and the fatty portions, oh yeah, that's the, that's the part that God likes. So we're hearing that. But we need to remember that these are God is not going to eat these things. They're not bringing him dinner. Okay, so it's not like so the title I was going to give the title of the message this morning, God hates salad. <laughs> Only because it would be very self-serving. <laughs> but that's not the case. God's not like, hey, why did you... Kale? Oh, I hate kale. You know? <laughs> it wasn't that. There's something else happening here because we need to understand that these are, they're, these are, they're bringing an offering, recognizing God's providence and expressing something from their hearts to the Lord. And then it reads, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering... But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Again, we, there's, there's more happening uh, as we, in, in like, in almost subliminally, we hear the narrator telling us things that he's not telling us directly. First of all, once again, who's mentioned first? Okay. And then we hear this. We pay close attention. Because I know if you grew up in church, some of you did, you hear this, and this is why we read this so fast, and God help us to prevent us don't let our familiarity obscure us from being able to hear the wisdom in the text. Because again, the familiarity is, yep, Cain, he brought tomatoes and God hates them. You know, God hates tomatoes. And, uh, and, or, or we hear that this is about some sort of a covenantal thing and, and, or sacrificial offering. And, 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 and No, 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 there's none of that's happening yet. We need to hear this slowly. Because if we, if we stop and say, yep, God hates salad, but he likes cheap, then we've missed it. 
Hear it slowly. Listen to it again. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Now, I'm, I'm today, I was, I was this week years old when I saw that. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. The offering is an expression of the person. The person is the offering. And the substance represents them, their life, their work, their inner person. And the, what is, it, what is it? the Lord had regard for Abel. Abel brings an offering and the Lord sees Abel before he sees what's in Abel's. The Lord sees what's in Abel's heart before he sees what's in Abel's hands. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the writer of Hebrews tells us that, that he said, by faith, Abel brought a better offering. We recognize that what the Lord saw that was not meat but faith, that somehow what, what Abel was doing, that he saw faith in Abel's heart. But then the narrator says, the Lord had no regard for Cain and his offering. The difference is more than a difference between, uh, the difference, pardon me, is more a difference between the character and the devotion of these men than it is about the difference between their offerings. The difference is in their hearts, not in their hands. The difference is in their hearts, not in their hands. This has always been. The Lord looks upon our hearts even as we show Him what is in our hands. And what is in our hands is only as pleasing as what is in our hearts. And that is offering. No wonder Jesus then will sit in the temple at the treasury and watch the people give in their worship. And he'll look over at this widow that nobody notices who puts in two tiny mites. And he says, wow, look at that. Meanwhile, all these, you know, all these other fellas are bringing in all kinds of stuff. The Lord looks upon our hearts before he looks at what's in our hands. So really this story begins with an act of worship that, that, that we will see goes south. And here's a spoiler alert. It's going to end with mankind again re, relearning to worship. So if there's bookends to the story, it, chapter 4, if you would have said to me, do you think chapter 4 in Genesis is about worship? I said, no, can't be. But as I look at it, I think it is. It's about worship that went wrong and conflict, and then men learning to worship again, yearning to find their way back to the garden. Let's continue. I'm, I'm running out of time quickly. Verse, verse 5, or, or the rest of verse 4, actually. So Cain became very angry, and his face was gloomy. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face gloomy? If you do well, verse 7, if you do well, your, will your face not be cheerful? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The Lord responds to Cain's uh, response to him with what sounds like a teaching moment. It's, I would suggest it's possible that that these two, that, that the Lord, that his response to Abel was a teaching moment and he's turning to Cain and giving him an opportunity to learn. <laughs> Cain responds to that with anger. He's angry and he has this fallen countenance. There's so much here about Cain's countenance that the inner climate of his life is expressed there. And we see this idea of a fallen countenance looking down, cultivating anger and resentment. And we'll begin to see this pattern in the, in the Hebrew Bible of the difference between a countenance that is cast down and lifted up. The difference between shame and anger and unbelief and disobedience and righteousness and joy and praise. That there is a, that what's going on in your heart is going to show up on your face. <laughs> but listen what to the Lord's counsel to Cain. And if we will all allow ourselves, I don't, and, and I, I, I keep, I keep giving all these, these disclaimers because if I mean I realize I'm I'm a church boy, and so I've heard the story. And so I'm a Sunday school boy and a Royal Ranger boy and all the other things. I mean, I don't think I only thing I didn't do was junior Bible quiz, but I did everything else. <laughs> And, and, uh, and I, when I read about Cain, I'm quick to dismiss anything I hear because Cain's a bad guy. Cain must, Cain's a bad guy. He rides a Harley Davidson. He's got, he's got, <laughs> he's got, he's got tattoos. He probably drinks beer. <laughs> People are like, still not bad. Still waiting for the bad. <laughs> I'm t- Bear with me. I'm talking about I'm this caricature of Cain, you know. And he's that he yeah, there we go. He's an axe murderer. Thank you, Cammy, for your help. And so anytime the Lord's talking to Cain or anything Cain says or does, I don't pay any attention because he's a bad guy. But here's the truth: Cain's not a bad guy. Cain's a church boy. What? But he did the thing. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever met a church boy? Cain's a church. He's literally born in church. And listen, Cain is talking to God. They're talking. So if Cain is a church boy, born in church, he's talking to God, maybe what God says to Cain is germane, is relevant to you and me. Maybe the warnings he gives to Cain, church boy, maybe you and I can listen. And what does he say? He says, why are you so angry? What's your damage, bro? Why is your face so downcast? If you do wrong, sin is lurking at the door. If you do right, your face will light up. You'll, the, the way out of this is to start doing the right thing. And, and you know what? People don't want to hear that. People come to you in a problem. They want to come to God with their problem and their face is downcast and their heart's full of resentment and anger and they want you to say, well, you're right. It's everybody else's fault. 
We need God to change everybody. And, and so then you'll be happy. Yes. <laughs> and, yet our, our, and yet in our origin, the very first thing God does when someone yeah. steps out is to say, what's your damage, bro? Yeah. Why are you upset? If you do well, if you choose to do what's right, you'll, you'll get, you'll, it, it'll lead to joy. It'll lead to a joyful countenance. Your face will light up. But, but if you do not do well, if you choose what is wrong, sin is lurking. Now, if you have your pens and your Bibles, we have another first. Sin. First time this word is mentioned. It's not the first time it happens per se, but it is the first time it's mentioned. And how is sin referenced? How is it described? It's described as if it had its own personality. It's animated. It's either, it's just, there's only two ways to look at it. In the, in the, on, one, on one linguistic uh, pattern, it's described like an animal ready to pounce, almost like a lion, ready, like the, that, that sort of a, the, like Peter talks about a roaring lion looking to devour someone. Sin is described like that, like an aggressive predator. The other thing, the other way is to look at it linguistically is from the, the history of the, of the text. It's, it sounds very close to, to the language used by those that would be familiar with some of Babylonian uh, uh, demonic traditions that they had, that they, it was, it's almost described like a, like, a, like a demonic presence waiting outside of a door to pounce. So our, our first introduction to sin is not pleasant. And not that sin is not some sort of an obtuse uh, uh, thing that's sort of just out there. It's a very real power with a very real purpose and an agenda. But it is not the cause of your behavior. The Lord says, when if you'll ch- when you choose to do wrong, sin that power that spirit is going to be is going to is going to look forward to partnering with you. So Cain can't even say, the devil made me do it. He'll say, the, the devil will be happy to partner with you in it. <laughs> this is really good instruction for us church people to remember that, that the Lord says, you choose to do what's right, and it'll be right. But if you choose to do what's wrong, you can anticipate that sin is going to jump in there with you, and it's going to go badly. And the way out of this is to do what's right. He said, sin has a desire for you to overcome you, to control you, but you must master it. He leaves Cain with this idea that sin is out. I mean, listen, it's scary. I'm going to leave this as a scary thought because we're going to fix it in just a minute. Okay? But if, if how many are glad we have more than Genesis to read? John Kramer's going to shout me down. Amen. I am too, John. Okay, we're about to be left with sin wants to take you over, but you must master it. We can't. That does that doesn't ever cease to be true. It was true for Cain. It was true for everybody who will read it, and it's true for everybody who reads Genesis today. Sin has a desire to to control you, to overtake you, but you must master it. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory because he has not left us in this, in this endless tug of war. <laughs> he has not abandoned us to a tug of war. He, we still, he still expects us to choose what is right and to master it, but here's what he did. 
In Romans chapter 6, Paul begins in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The life he lives, he lives to God. He died to sin, he lives to God. Listen to verse 11. In the same way. Say that out loud. In the same way. Not in the same way. Not in sort of the same way or junior varsity way. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer, I love that, that this is the word here, we're talking about offerings, but rather offer yourselves. You're the first offering. You are the offering. You are the offering. You're the offering. And then the, that, what's in your heart determines what's in your hands. You're the offering. Someone say, I'm the offering. I'm the offering. <sighs> This is what I mean by, Andrew, this is what I mean by, I'm so excited, okay? Okay, do not offer any part of yourself, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. We're still expected to choose the right thing, but now he has changed who's pulling on the rope. (laughs) Romans chapter 8 continues in verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation, but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living in accord with the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, somebody say, by the Spirit. Do you know that this is the new covenant of the Spirit, that we live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, breathe by the Spirit. We live in vital contact with the Spirit. That is the source, the supply, the secret, the shama of Christian living. (laughs) I got a little shama myself. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. They've come back to the garden. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. We are children of God. Consider this. Remember this when we hear about what happens, what Cain does next. Christ Jesus has delivered us from the power and penalty of sin by his own death, and he has given us his spirit to totally reorient our lives toward living to righteousness. So therefore, friends, you and I, even though we need to remember this warning, beware what lurks, we do not need to fear what lurks at the door. We need to believe who lives within us. Well, come back to the story. In four minutes. Get your faith on. (laughs) Verse 8. We have first family, first offerings, now first violence. Cain talked to his brother Abel, and it happened that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Why? 
That's rhetorical. Why? Why did he do it? What's, let's look in the Bible. Let's, what does the narrator say about why he did it? What was going on? He doesn't tell us. To explain it would almost be to excuse it. It is supposed to be read and we are supposed to be horrified. Shocked. Why did you do it? There is no why. There is no reason, rationale. But that's what we're supposed to feel. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, John writes later, he says, Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, and for what reason did he murder him? Because his, de- his own deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Hey, friends, violence is not the voice of the unheard. There's nothing sacred about violence or cool, trendy. Violence is not the voice of the unheard. It is the voice of the unrighteous. And the solution God gave Cain was to do good, to do well, to live righteously, and it would change his countenance to joy. But Cain's response was to let anger rule him, and it led to murder. Cain's response was to let anger stay. And as he let anger stay, it led to murder. This is no wonder Jesus warns us as his disciples. When he said, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm telling you, don't even be angry. Don't let anger get hold of your heart. It's a murderous motive. It's also interesting. We have to listen to the wisdom here. It's also, we just have to stop and say, we recognize that the first act of violence, the first murder, the first act of violence was not, did not come from the hands of a stranger, but from the hand of a brother. I have to, we must hear this wisdom. Beware the harm we might do to those nearest us. All right. Verse 9 through 12, real quick. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You'll be a wanderer and a drifter on the earth. First of all, I want us to hear this. Listen to the questions God asks us in Genesis. The question he asks Adam and now the question he asks Adam's son. The first question is this, that God asks mankind is, where are you? The next question he asks is, where's your brother? These are the two questions that summarize the human condition. Hiding from God and hostile to our brother. The first leads to the second. But the questions that, the way that God asked them, the the responsibility is placed upon us. 
It's our responsibility. Where are you? In other words, you're the one who have hidden. Where is your brother? What have you done to your brother? Although the responsibility for the tragedy is on us, God himself takes the responsibility for redemption. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. It is the Lord who takes the responsibility to redeem us all, to bring us back to the garden, to redeem us to himself, and to restore us to one another. Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? What response? Yes. Everybody say yes. yes. Yeah. What re- he says, what responsibility do I have for my brother? Who? And that's, this is also our pout. Whenever we are confronted by God about how we treat others, and, or Jesus says, the, the guy says, what am I supposed to do? He says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. What's the guy say in Luke? Well, pff, who's my neighbor? It's the same. Am I my brother's keeper? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, your neighbor is the person closest to you who needs you. And then Jesus really answers the question when he says, greater love has no man than this. Then he laid down his life for his friend. Love one another as I have, and I'm about to love you. Verse 13, as the, the consequences of... Uh, our, our respond, Cain responds to the consequences of what the Lord said. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to endure. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and I will be hidden from your face, and I will be a wanderer and a drifter on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him seven times as much. And the Lord placed a mark on Cain so that no one finding him would kill him. Then Cain left the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Then Cain left the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain seems to either repent or to complain even more. He will no longer have a right to the ground. Before this, he was a farmer. He tilled the ground. Now he will either, either not be able to or he's just forbidden from doing that. Moreover, it, it, I cannot not say that we have to hear the Lord say that the, 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 the blood of the innocent, when it is shed, cries out to God for justice. He hears the voice of innocent blood. He's heard it from the very beginning. And Jesus will actually say God still hears that innocent blood and he records the voices of innocent blood. And there will be an accounting. So Cain says, I can't do it. It's too much for me. He's either, he's either complaining or repenting. We aren't sure. So God says, you're going you're gonna to wander the land. You're gonna, and, then, and, then, and then he says, Cain says, I, I, it, too much. And so what the Lord does is when he says, he actually prevents what it sounds like is God's increasing violence. He's not. He is prohibiting retribution. He is saying there must not be an escalation of this violence. And yet, what we'll read later is, Humanity escalates violence. That violence is responded to with violence and it escalates. But God says, do not meet violence with violence. There's a mark put on Cain. I guess because it's 1034, I'm already late. Let me just say, how many of you want to know what that mark was? I don't know. The whole point was that God was putting, that God does things. He does seal us. There was something of that that God made some sort of an agreement to say the violence must stop here. 
What's, what's really intriguing is that Cain's complaint is, I'm going to be driven. He says, I'm going to be driven from your face. And then in verse 16, it says, then Cain left the presence of the Lord. If we miss that sentence, I feel like we are going to miss a huge shift in the narrative. Who left who? And who did he leave? He left the presence of the Lord. And now we'll, and that, that is the precursor for what we're about to see in the line of Cain. He left the presence of the Lord. That's going to define the line of Cain. Heads up. Okay, we're, going to about, we're about to see seven generations, and I'm not going to go through very, very, very slowly. We're going to see seven generations of the line of Cain. And what you're going to see is that they continue to act like image bearers in, in the way that they're, what they're able to do, their capacity, but they, they, but they reject the covenant of an image bearer because what, what we'll see is this, that when Cain leaves the presence of the Lord, the Lord is no longer mentioned in his line. He, 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 he initiates a line of people who live without a conscious awareness or reverence for God. So here we go, real quick, here we go. 17.24. Then Cain had relations with his wife. Put the click up there real quick, Faith, because right away, right away you're one of, you want to know where did he get his wife. There's the answer. We don't know. Okay? And the truth is, they, they lived for 900 years, and they could have had lots of kids. There's a, there's, it's, it's a probability there could have been thousands of people. On the, uh, don't worry about it. Okay? Here we go. But the narrator says that he, he, got, he had a wife. She conceived. She gave birth to Enoch. Cain built a city. Interesting. He, he's, not a, he's not a rancher. He's not a farmer. So what's he got left? Now he's a builder. He's a, contract, a construction worker. Okay, right. All right, so now he builds a city, but, and he names the city after Enoch, his son. Uh, but notice that city building, he be, this, uh, this is, happens uh, that, uh, and again, I don't want to, don't press this too much because the Lord, you know, we know that the Jerusalem is a city, so yay, but Jerusalem is the, is the picture of a city whose center is the presence of God, okay? But what we'll see here is from this point on, just pay attention, is from this point on that, that when man, apart from reverence for God, man will begin the process of, of gathering in cities in rebellion against God. We'll see it in Babel. We'll see it in Egypt. We'll see it in Babylon. We'll see it in Rome. That the idea of man gathering in rebellion against God is defined as the city of man. And even in the book of Revelation, God's still dealing with it. Started right here. So now Enoch, then, then, now, now, I, won't go, I gotta go quickly here. What you see in verses 18 uh, through 22 is the story the, of, of, of uh, Cain's descendants. And we see that some of his descendants begin to, they dwell in tents, they, 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 do, they, do, they do herding, they, 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 are, uh, they develop a, a musical instrument. This is all the capacity. They don't lose, they don't lose the capacity of image bearers. Okay, they, they, they're developing things. Then you gotta read this one part that you might, that might, you might scratch your head. Uh, uh, Tubal Cain is the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. Now, if you're a historian, you might say, hey, wait a minute. This is way before the Bronze Age. Right. Apparently, there was a whole lot of development of mankind before the flood. There's a whole mystery to just how advanced they got before. Okay. You say, what flood? We don't have that yet. Right. It, we know it's there. We've read it. Okay. <laughs> Now, but listen to the escalation of violence. Then Lamech said to his wives, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words, for I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged seven, seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Now there's an escalation of entitlement and violence. 
That this is Cain, this is Cain's lineage grows progressively carnal and violent. And there is no mention of the Lord in Cain's line. But, but, but we close with this, verse 25 and 26. Let's come. Verse 25 and 26. Then, verse 25, Then Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and, and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed to me another child in the place of Abel. Seth, if it were a construction term, it would mean foundation. Okay? Because Cain has killed him. So Seth also, to Seth also was born a son, and he named him Enosh. And this is it. You ready? Then people began to call on the name of the Lord. Say it with me. Then people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the end. This is the how the story concludes. It begins with an act of worship that resulted in conflict that went south. And it, and it appears that that, that that activity ceases. But it concludes with, once again, people are learning to worship. The line of Seth, there, are, there, there, there come those who begin to call on his name. This is more than just talking to God or, or saying his name. The audience that would have heard this understood that this is people are beginning to learn to worship. To, and th- th- this is the phrase that is used of Abraham and the patriarchs when they would stop and build an altar and make a public place of honoring the Lord, of seeking him and honoring him. And the narrator wants us to know that, that from the line of Seth will come a people who are learning to worship, who are yearning for the garden again, seeking God. And it is from this line of people who will learn to worship that the Gospel of Luke tells us that the Messiah will come, that that Jesus comes from the line of Seth and Enosh. So as this chapter concludes, we see that the differences between the lines, the differences now even in, in in the table of nations and the generations, the difference between people and nations will not be necessarily language or culture or cities or tools or capacities, the main difference is going to be if a people will call on the name of the Lord. And it makes sense now as we read the rest of the book, the difference is going to be God is looking, God is looking for those, He is looking to embrace those who will call on His name. So, Lord, we call on your name as we close this morning. We bring you our hearts in sincerity. We don't just offer you our hands. We bring you our hearts. You can have it all, Lord. You can have it all, Lord. Every part of my stand together and just sing that part again, shall we?
this heart that is now Lord, we come to you with sincerity, with open hearts. We say, Lord, we give our lives to you. We give our lives, us, we are the offering. Take the entirety of our lives, Lord, and lead us as individuals, as friends and family members. Lord, let us be at Heritage. Let us be a people who live as those who call on the name of the Lord. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. We give you thanks and praise today in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. Enjoy some fellowship in the cafe. Say hello to someone. Be kind to others. And again, if you'd like anointing with oil or or hands laid on you, I'm happy to pray.